0: Now approaching junction at platform passengers Airport, Please stay on board. Next stop road station. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation. We thought we'd bring our prices down. What is it all about? Our
1: current mediascape resembles what the mediascape looked like when the First Amendment was written than anything that's in the past, you know, 30, 40 years. Anonymously, I mean, the Federalist Papers were published anonymously. Alexander Hamilton's yes. duel was over an anonymous post. They They were all pseudo, you know, non-troll accounts on Twitter. That's what they would be if they were alive today.
0: Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. I'm your host, Danny Fortson, the West Coast correspondent for the Sunday Times. Thank you for tuning in as we barrel toward the end of July. It's crazy. Somehow we're already almost in August. I'm not sure how that happened. Um, But anyhow, this week we have a very special guest. Antonio Garcia Martinez is on the pod. Antonio has had a very unique path, kind of in, out, in, and out again of the tech world. So he's a, he was an early product manager at Facebook, and he helped actually build its early ad tracking system. He wrote a memoir about his time at the company called Chaos Monkeys, which was very entertaining, slash satirical, slash irreverent. Anyhow, the book did really well. It kind of turned him into a media entity out here. He started doing stuff for Wired. And then a few years ago, a couple years ago, he went to work at a startup once again, and then landed a job at Apple to help build out their ad system. And then within a month, he was fired. So what happened was some folks caught wind of a few passages from his book. They started circulating on Twitter people got very upset seeing what he had written back in 2016 as kind of sexist or culturally insensitive let's say petition started it gained some traction within Apple um, Apple blinked And he was gone, you know, for a book he wrote five years ago. So now he's back doing the media thing once again uh, with his own newsletter called The Pull Request. And so I want to have him on to talk about just the shifting landscape in Silicon Valley, both culturally and from a tech perspective. And you can obviously speak from a very unique perch, uh, having been kind of caught by those very forces. And also, I wanted to talk to him about his other area of expertise ads because what is happening there is really interesting it's basically kind of a quiet revolution is unfolding that ultimately will change the way the entire web is paid for and another kind of result of that shift is going to be you know really further consolidation of power really between two companies apple and google so obviously we cover a lot of ground But Antonio's a great talker, and he's one of the very few people who truly do have feet in both the media and tech worlds, which are obviously very different, and these days often at war. Um, So he's got a lot of interesting perspectives. I think you'll really enjoy the conversation. So I'm going to step aside now and give you, without further ado, Antonio Garcia Martinez. Enjoy. How's life?
1: Ah, it's, uh, it's a lot going on, transitional moment, but uh, it's, it's been interesting. I signed on for this, uh, I think I mentioned this pro-substack thing, so in theory, it's my full-time job.
0: That's one of the things I want to talk to you about. I had um, Chris Best on the program oh, cool. uh, six months ago, so we talked about all the ins and outs of the Substack world and what they're doing, and it's super interesting, but your kind of career arc is fascinating.
1: <laughs> by which we mean tragic and dramatic and confused <laughs> and and just way more, way more drama than I ever wanted in life. But yes.
0: Yes. And you were on the pod. Gosh, it must have been two plus years ago, talking something Facebookish. But for those who don't know, could we just kind of go through a kind of a potted history of your career, and then get to the point of where we are now, and kind of how you ended up here? Because you're doing, you have hands in lots of different pies, and I think it's it's just what you're doing, you, what you're up to is really interesting. And uh... <laughs> oh, god.
1: Um... Yeah, I'm one of those people who's actually not that old that managed to write a, a memoir. Um, it's 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 weird. I just, you know, I, it's it's like I'm racing Maya Angelou, who I believe at the time of her death had like five autobiographies. Hopefully we don't quite get to that level. But um, so yeah, so in, in my case, I dropped out of a PhD program in physics at Berkeley because I read Michael Lewis's Liars Poker. went to work for a few years on a Goldman Sachs a Wall Street training desk. That blew up and that's what drove my transition to tech. And I started at a mid-stage startup in Silicon Valley, founded, left that, met some founders, started a company, went through Y Combinator, which is an incubator, sold that company yeah. to, to Twitter, landed at Facebook in the early days, built part of the ad system.
0: What was that company that you started?
1: Oh, it's, I mean, it's like a nothing company, but it's. it was called Adgrok, was its official name, right. and it was a, a marketing tool for small businesses, right. uh, like many at the time, all of whom failed, including mine, essentially. So yeah, and worked for Facebook in the very early days, built their initial targeting and tracking technology, like the pair of shoes that follows you around the internet. I built the first versions of that at Facebook. Then I left, then I was an advisor at Twitter, worked at some other companies, and then wrote this memoir, Chaos Monkeys, that did pretty well in 2016. Uh, Very funny. Very funny book. Right. All the media outlets that uh, later condemned the book years later, put it on their best of 2016 books. Of but, course. But we have no memory now. This is an Orwellian reality <laughs> in which the, the, the past only serves the present. There is no independent past. And so starting then, I became sort of a freelance writer, commenter, paid speaker, whatever, ambiguous media guy who lives from the spectacle, which I did for several years. It drove me literally crazy. I was also living in a small cabin up in the, in the Northwestern woods that I had put together myself.
0: So what drove you crazy about being a media guy? Because I'm a media guy in a very in a different way than you have been, but um. and you're apparently not crazy. So, so some, somehow this that career is possible. I just
1: I don't know that my brain is is up to it. Well, you know, I often joke that I'm not really a narcissist. I only play one on the internet. And so, like, I, I don't really like turning my life into a spectacle, which is what you need to do to, to sort of live right. in spectacle. And I think most, yeah. most people either buy a ticket to their own ride and actually believe they are that blue checkmark account, or they remain in a permanent state of disassociation with it, or just some weird pathological state with it. And it drives mm. them kind of crazy, which is what happened with me. I think that, you know, working on a second book, having the freelance writing career, the Twitter thing... You know, I fought these various fights at the time in terms of the media cycle around Facebook, kind of arguments to the reigning narrative, which, you know, I think we're right, but in the end, who cares? And uh, yeah, just the feeling of sort of going to war against this beast and the futility of it and whatever. So I went back to tech after that.
0: Right. So how long did you, were you living that life of kind of writing a second book and writing for Wired and kind of being a very online person? I guess it was about two
1: and a half, three years from, so the book came out in the middle of 2016. And I guess I... You know, had a total meltdown in the beginning of 2019 and then basically started, a, you know, a new job at a midsize startup in like halfway through uh, 2019. So yeah, roughly two to three. Yeah, two and a half, three years. Well, also living like off grid, you know, without a hot hotshot for a while.
0: <laughs> well, I was going to say, so you also, yeah, you mentioned you built a structure. Yeah. And I'm interested because apropos of nothing this weekend, I'm going glamping in Mendocino. So I generally like camping. My wife hates camping. So this is the kind of happy medium we've uh, arrived on. We'll see how it goes. But um, when you say you built a structure, what exactly were you living in?
1: I bought five acres of woods in this little island called Orcas. Well, not so little, but Orcas Island in, in the San Juan Islands, which are, no Americans really know about. I didn't know about them until I randomly ended up there because I bought a sailboat up there that I, I later sailed down here. So there's also a sailing subthread to this as well. But in any case, wow. I bought some land up there. because That's also where I wrote the book. When I got the book deal, I'm like, I need to like literally... Go be the unibomber you wrote chaos monkeys up there. up there yeah 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 yeah. not on the land that that i ended up buying but i, I just rented a house on there and i kind of fell in love with that area and right. when one of the advanced checks came in on like a random one i bought five acres of, of woodland up there
0: as one does as one does every
1: everything about my life has been an imprudent lark that i later regret this is one of them to be honest to a certain degree <laughs> um and so i bought this land then you know the book came out in june or whatever yeah i think it was june of 2016. Big success, launched on CBS this morning with Gail King, a lot of media speaking. You know, you, you come this whole thing. And then I, I, again, as per usual, got completely nauseous with it and literally just showed up on the land with like a backpack and a sleeping bag and a tent in like late September after two to three months of, you know, flogging the book and doing endless media and all this crap. And then set out to sort of tame the land, put in a well, cleared land. It was just woods. There's nothing out there.
0: Did you have a gigantic lumberjack beard? Um,
1: sort of. I mean, in the Pacific Northwest, you basically have to. You have to have your yeah. Jack Beard flannels and drink IPA at least once a day. And if you overcook salmon, <laughs> it's the death penalty. You are you are actually publicly executed. Um, I'm glad that I'm California, where when I cook salmon, the you know things are a lot lower stakes. Um yeah, we're softer. We're, so, we're softer. a lot softer. They don't they don't revere the salmon here like they do in the Northwest. So yeah, I uh I spent, you know, I mean it wasn't like a full-time thing all the time because I was bouncing to San Francisco with the boat, this, that, speaking gigs, whatever. But uh yeah, no, I went from like literally tent level to then a TP level. Did have water and a well and all that, and the water is hard to find on the island. Then we took it up to the uh a modern yurt, which it has these insulated hard wall side things, and so uh, with a platform, you know, and eventually got to electricity, full solar, hot shower, bathhouse separate from the. Wow. And then, you know, the next step was a full blown house. I mean, there was no reason to stay in the cabin step. The, the yurt was a fairly large cabin already, actually. And so we're going to go to the house step. But that was the next step. But I think it was getting stuck in the house step, getting stuck in the second book step, and then just going crazy, spending 10 hours a day on Twitter is basically what did me. In. And then living in the Northwest, which, again, I know it sounds idyllic, but in the winters and stuff, and if yes. you have to do like literally everything to keep life going. It really gets to be a bit of a slog.
0: Well, having lived many, many years in London, I'm very familiar with the kind of the weather patterns, but actually roughing it in there day in, day out. That sounds like hell to me.
1: Yeah, I know. I have this curious ability to just suck up endless amounts of pain, which is just which is a which is stupid in the end. That's just <laughs> I don't know why. And then as I get older, my ability to do it actually is less. But then like the, the, the normal human ability to sort of avoid pain has it quite developed because of course I've I've ignored it for 20 years and so now I'm hitting the wall of no longer being put, putting up with my bullshit so to speak.
0: But. And so for people who don't know Chaos Monkeys your first book what was it what were you trying to do with it?
1: Well, like I said, it, you know, strictly speaking it's a memoir but it's it's a very highly stylized memoir sort of in the style of Hunter S. Thompson which if you if you're not familiar and it might be kind of more of a a Gen X or even boomer reference. You know, he was a journalist who lived in the 60s and 70s and he was part of this sort of new journalism or like Gonzo journalism. Gonzo, gonzo as he called it. Uh, Tom Wolfe is also there, although he's a lot more literary. Hunter S. Thompson's a little bit more rage and drug fueled. You know, Fear and Living in yeah. Las Vegas is probably his most famous work, film with Johnny Depp. And, um, you know, it's very much got the verisimilitude of being there. Like it's, you know, and in my case, like I wasn't, you know, S. Thompson was typically a journalist experiencing a thing who inserted himself in the story. In my case, like, You know, I actually worked at Facebook building this thing. I wasn't even there nominally as a journalist. But so in any case, that's where the memoir side sort of comes in. But it was still in the same style of like, you know, strong voice, definitely breaking, quote unquote, the fourth wall, addressing the reader directly. And then, you know, the persona of the character, the reason why I wrote the book, which kind of broke the sort of code of silence that kind of lives around Silicon Valley, which I think is kind of dumb in a way. And I I think that's that, by the way, is going away because. As traditional media's coverage of tech gets more anti-tech, people realize they have to tell their own story. And so the the thought of going and telling how it is, I I don't think is as as badly seen as it used to be, to be clear. But historically, at least before, you know, 2017 or 18, there's a a real dearth of like raw insider startup takes. It's precisely because the sort of ethos inside startup land is is to not do that. So I thought I was canceling myself, so to speak, at least inside tech for what I was doing. But what I was trying to do was... You know, I I do think unironically that we're living through this, you know, historically transitional point in human history where these little black squares in our pockets that connect us to the entire world are going to change a lot about how things happen. And we're seeing it happen as we speak. And I just, I just knew that a hundred years from now, right? People would ask the question, like, what was it like right then when that transition was happening? You're probably roughly my age, Jay. You know, we're the the bridge generation that grew up in an analog world, but we're still young enough to totally embrace digital. And now we totally live in it, right? But it's like I still remember, you know, getting letters from my parents or, you know, the, I still remember the pre-internet world in a very real way. Like this has been an abrupt transition.
0: Yeah. I remember my, when I went to college at UC Santa Barbara, I was leaving and I was like saying goodbye to my high school friends. And I was like, and the university gave us an email address. Yeah. And so I gave my email address to one of my friends, but I, I was so, it was so new to me that I only gave him the first part, like D F O R T S. 08. <laughs> and I was like, that's my email address. Just email me there, like without the at ucsb.edu. I never got an email from him. <laughs> right. That's
1: how naive we were about it. <laughs> so, but so yeah, for all the, the youngsters listening to this, who probably think this is like a bunch of old folks <laughs> talking about email. But in any case, it wasn't that long ago, to be quite honest. And this is yes. funny. If you read a lot of the media studies books in the 60s and 70s, it's often the people who were there for the beginning of it. That really understand the transition because they see the break right while those who are in yes. the sort of i mean of course history is kind of fractal and even we're late to sort of the digital media phenomenon in that tv was already kind for of sure. crusty when we were in high school or whatever and like not i mean we watched it but it wasn't like cool and new like bbs's or whatever so i mean this, yeah. this history is very fractal but if you're at the beginning of the break you sort of see the jump from what was before to what's coming and in some sense it's more salient in your mind well i think people now just take smartphones to be sort of part of the scenery and don't quite understand for it. for sure so in any case long statement I just wanted to, you know, document something at the time because I knew people 100 years from now, twenty years from now, whatever. But ask asked, what was it like when humanity made that jump from information moving at the speed of like things moving through the world, like a physical letter, to no, instantly yeah. your brain transported to some random dude in India or Cuba or Argentina or whatever,
0: right? From inside Facebook, which was the kind of the leading force in reshaping Kind of how we do all that stuff,
1: right? And you know, and now it's maybe less central than it used to be, right? I mean, Facebook used to be kind of everything, and now there's competitors to it. But in any case, that the, the goal was to sort of capture that moment and also capture a certain time in history when you know, we could go and raise half a million dollars based on nothing we didn't know we were doing, run like crazy, sell the company on paper, at least for something like 10 million, do whatever, like that, you know. And so the character, <laughs> very long answer to your short question, the character in the book is kind of that sort of a- slightly asshole persona that, I mean, certainly I embody to a certain degree. And I think everyone who's a startup founder at some point is pushed into some form of mental sociopathy <laughs> where they have to, you know, <laughs> work within this incentive system that make, basically, I mean, here, here I am, you know, Hate hate the sin, not the sinner. Hate the game, not the player. But, you know, I, I think it turns you to the sociopath, basically. So the the persona of the character, which maybe is leading to your next question, was that sort of Hunter S. Thompson mixed with common asshole who drops a lot of literary references in this bizarre madcap tale that spanned two or three years of my life. That was the book.
0: Right. So let's put a pin in the asshole bit. We'll come right. back to that. I've known you, I don't know, three four years via various different Twitter DMs and talking about various stories and stuff. But... What I found interesting was also you were in inside the company. You write a book that kind of lampoons a lot of what is happening there. But you're also a defender of the company, at least in terms of, like, as you say, these kind of really overarching narratives around what Facebook is, what Silicon Valley is. And I'm just wondering, from your perspective, how things are changing, what direction they are skewing toward Because you were kind of being like, well, you know, sure, Facebook may be evil because of X, Y, or Z, but what's really, you know, you're kind of getting the wrong end of the stick. That's not how this works, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, definitely since the Trump election, I mean, there was, I think Recode actually published some study that... Did some semantic analysis of pieces published about Facebook with sentiment analysis and saw that the negative sentiment just took off in this magic date around November of 2016. And what happened in November 2016? Well, I wonder what. Yeah. <laughs> and so you could tell the coverage of tech to the extent that it was blamed for the whole Trump phenomenon is definitely part of it. And then I think, you know, if, if you think really for, you know, further back, my first time in Silicon Valley in the early aughts as a grad student at Berkeley, I didn't really work in tech, but I was kind of there. You'd read Wired right? Total cheerleaders of the whole tech revolution, fast company, all this. I mean, (laughs) it's hard to imagine now, again, it wasn't that long ago, but typically tech was covered in a positive light, right? There might've been the occasional scandal here and there, but by and large, it was like a positive, optimistic take on tech. And now that it's just utterly and completely changed. Tech is the source of all evil, tech is Satan, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's Part of it, I think it's somewhat unfair. Although I agree that, and again, I, I thought I was going to get canceled for Bucky's because of my criticism of tech. And actually, like for example, the internal cult at Facebook at the time was like a communist personality cult. In fact, I even make the parallel to like communist <laughs> Cuba that my parents fled. <laughs> that you know everyone's wearing the same uniform. There's all these posters on the wall, and there's like a supreme leader. Like, what does this look like, right? I'm not, you know, obviously. Yeah. Nothing nothing in Facebook is anything like it is in Cuba, but to a certain degree, there there's definitely has certain similarities there. And so, you know, things like that, which I, yeah, I think tech does deserve some criticism. I think, you know, I think it deserves some criticism around the fact that it's kind of careless and unself-aware with the things that it does, right? It has this perma-optimism. And because, let's face it, it tends to be young kids in a certain time in a certain place with a certain education, they don't understand the impact of a Facebook on, you know, Myanmar or Cuba or anything, right? And you know, I guess where I, I break with the traditional tech critics, again, having worked it in a little bit, I think it's it's one of these worlds that you kind of have to need to be in tech to understand or at least spend a lot of time observing. You know, th- there's a lot of necessary delusions that keep the Silicon Valley thing going. Like the Bay Area, which I've lived in and, you know, in and around for two decades now, I just realized yes. or longer actually. Has certain animating delusions that make parts of it completely fucked up and strange and not a nice place to live. But part of it is the magic, right? And and if you've traveled yes. and I wrote the book actually, you know, I have an EU passport. So I was thinking of like, oh, after I write this book I'm going to have to go work in Barcelona or Berlin or London or whatever. (laughs) Um, And so I actually, I I started writing the book in Barcelona and Berlin, checking out their startup scenes. And every European city is trying to create some Silicon something, right? And um, to some greater or lesser degree, London to a certain degree, I think has succeeded. Uh, Other cities have not succeeded. And like, there's just a certain magic they can't capture in many ways, right? So like SF has, or the Bay Area broadly has this sort of magic to it. And I I guess I just wish that people would understand that there is kind of a trade-off there and that like all the people that criticize tech would never, Use their phones as much, as much, if not more, than, than most people. And there is a certain, and again, you know, Elon with his crazy tweets and his sort of personality cult, again, if you go back and throughout all of history, right, whether it be Thomas Edison, JP Morgan, they were all raving lunatics, all of them, every single one of them, right? Yeah. Rockefeller, they were all they were all nuts. They and so the current crop is in many ways no different, frankly, than the past. And so I guess a little bit of realism around that. And then, yeah, when it just comes down to the mechanics of like, oh, how does an ad system use your geographic data? Like the stories are often just like flatly wrong. Like, this is actually not true. This is just not how it works. And getting things wrong doesn't help anybody. Right. Because I, 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 yeah. I do think the public, you know, we do have lots of debates in front of us with this new technology and just getting things wrong doesn't help anyone really.
0: Right. And so you go back into tech, uh, what you say, 2019. 2019. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're working at this as an ad tech company or something.
1: Sort of, it's a company called Branch, uh, backed by Founders Fund and a bunch of VCs. Fairly large when I joined, by the way. You know, we talk about startup, but this is a company with 300 plus people and real revenue, sure. and it's it's not four people in a room anymore. They're one of those pieces of internet plumbing that makes the the whole internet work and most people don't think about it because it's not a consumer product. It does mobile attribution and what that means to take a very, you know, slightly pessimistic look on it. It's, it kind of tracks events online. So when you do things in your app or whatever, it actually tracks it. And for, lo- and for lots of reasons, that's like a separate task inside the big yeah. internet edifice. And they're one of the big companies that do that. And then they were also building a search tool and an ad system, a bunch of other stuff that they're sort of not, that's less public. But that is a critical part of what they're what they're working on,
0: so you were doing that for a couple of years, and then you get hired by Apple, and I know you have certain NDAs around that, but can you say what you were hired to do for them?
1: uh yeah, yeah, well, that, I mean that's public. I think it's still on my LinkedIn actually I haven't even changed it um it's um you know there's an ads platform team at at Apple that does ads that's no secret and uh yeah, I was hired uh, as a engineering lead on the uh, ads
0: platform team and so you were hired, and then I think you set the record. <laughs>
1: It's funny because I, I had a lot of conversations with other friends in like you know the little private signal groups where which is like where the real conversations happen or whatever, yeah. and they're all like, "What are you doing, Antonio? Why are you going? You're a you're never going to be able to shut your mouth up enough to actually work there, given the constraints they have about employee whatever. Two, it's like total big corporate whatever. You haven't worked in big corporate whatever since since Facebook, and even that wasn't that big corporate. It was, no. Right around the time of the IPO, it's definitely not a 150,000-person company. It's like, if you don't shut up right now, you're just going to set a record for the fastest firing, <laughs> which I did, but not for the reason cited, because I totally did shut up. And turned on all this media and did all this stuff, sacrificed myself for the empire. But yeah. In any case, the public story at this point could be Googled or whatever, but there was a whole employee petition, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, The first of many, apparently. Now there's petitions about Israel-Palestine going back to work. I, I, I somehow triggered this whole…
0: Within uh, Apple. Within Apple,
1: yeah, yeah, within Apple.
0: Right. Yeah. right right i wonder if there's one about china and the uyghurs oh
1: yeah wouldn't that be interesting if they actually took a stand on something that uh, apple corporate management can actually do something about
0: <laughs> yeah yeah, and actually really matters directly to their bottom line correct. correct but so basically for those who haven't followed the story you were hired and then i think let go within 24 hours basically oh, no 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 it no, no. wasn't that fast
1: I, I was there like a month no, no, no. Oh, you were there a month? Oh, yeah. Well, I think it was maybe three and a half weeks. I haven't done that. Oh, okay. But no, no, no. no. But yeah, no. I started to work there. I, I sold this whole compound. I had in the Northwest. I sold. I started shifting my whole life around. And you know, I was there for for a decent amount of time, enough to get settled and like start cranking and working and all that stuff. Yeah.
0: Right, right, right. And then people come across Chaos Monkeys somehow.
1: Again, which is funny because it's you know it, it's a best selling book that I mean not to just to my own horn, but it was it's like this is hardly a state secret. Here. <laughs> right and, um, and I don't want to recover all this ground because the, the Apple ground was kind of over but yeah I mean they they discovered it and uh, in the same way that we I don't know reevaluate any author in the past according to current morality the same sort of uh, reevaluation process happened I guess you could say
0: yeah so there's a petition they say goodbye and what I thought was really interesting is just I've been covering a lot of the kind of cultural kind of wars that are breaking out. At a lot of these big companies, specifically, you know, most notably at Google. And it does feel like, uh, again, putting this in history, it feels like kind of a strange time where kind of these big organizations, which for a lot of people are more part of their identity than like their country or where they live. And so they're like, they want, you know, Microsoft or Google or Facebook to kind of be, you know, they're giant trillion dollar corporations, but they want to be like, you know, righteous and kumbaya. And it feels a little... (laughs) I think, to a degree, it's it's absolutely warranted and great to hold these companies to a high standard, but it also feels a little unrealistic and kind of crazy. Yeah, I mean,
1: this is where I turn into a raving Bernie bro and go on about how capitalism has denuded the civic landscape from any personal associations that any, any individual might have, which... You know, it's one of these things that is almost certainly true, but also unfixable in the sense that, you know, in, in some sense, our political spectrum is now defined by which year you want to turn the political clock back to, whether it's 1950 <laughs> or 1992 or 1650 or whatever. Right. That basically defines right. it. Because nobody's thinking about the future except for the techies. Maybe. But, yeah, no, I, I, you know, I, I cite this in my first post after this whole drama on my Substack pull request. There's a, the first post is bad apple about it. And I cite, you know, this whole mania for like bringing the real self to work which has been kind of this management mantra that cynically is probably just a way to get people to work harder because their entire lives are consumed by their professional lives. But then also generationally, yeah. as, as you cited, I think it's just the case that for younger people, I mean, it was true for me even going through it. It's not like it's no. such a novel phenomenon, but you know, work is their all-encompassing reality. And then I think they feel very strong. Politics has become kind of a, a pseudo religion. And so they, they bring that with them to work and they see work as an extension of that. And they expect companies to, to sort of Im- Im- embody those beliefs. But of course, it raises lots of problems. I don't know, I've, I've got, I'm have i working on a piece about this. I think the the wokeness thing is really strange. And again, it, like you said, there's there's noble sentiments behind it in a way, which is why it's hard to come back because it's like, but that, but that's true of a lot of liberalism or a lot of sort of social justice crusading. It's like, oh, well, what? You know, if you think, well, we've gone a little too far, What well, do you hate X? Like whatever, whatever the thing yeah. is that you're trying to vindicate. And so I, mean, I what I think the real challenge is, and this is like a broad, I, I like in the middle of these conversations, you're going to rabbit holes pull back. I think this is probably like a product manager reflex, pulling back from like 30,000 foot view, what is going on here? And I think what's going on here is that everyone is trying to reconcile the sort of equality that, you know, liberal democracy or the equity that social justice sort of promises. And then the inequality that Unrestrained capitalism actually delivers, right? <laughs> right. Those are two massive forces in society. Like for some reason, because we beat the Soviets, we think that capitalist liberal democracy is just this natural pairing. And I actually think it's pretty antithetical.
0: Yeah, it's unencumbered capitalism, particularly. Right. Right. And so okay. I think everyone's trying to navigate
1: that. In fact, I was. Maddie Glassy has posted a study from uh, Pew, which is
0: a nonpartisan research
1: thing that does polling. I think everyone's confused by it. I forget the exact numbers, but basically, it was the case people ask, you know should corporations be taking steps to increase, I forget how they phrase it, I'm paraphrasing, but should they take steps to increase, you know, equality or representation of minorities or whatever in in corporate jobs? And the vast majority said yes by like 70% or something, right, and then they asked, so should companies basically lower standards for minorities, women, whatever, in order to get to equality? And 70% said no, right? (laughs) And it was like shifting the other way, and that is the collision right there of views and, you know, the companies themselves are caught in that in that in between, which, again, to me is just like we have this, you know, this the Zen for equality. I mean, that that typifies in some sense the Western Enlightenment paradigm, right, that everyone's equal for the law yeah. with a capitalism that actually generates a lot of inequality. And, and to be clear, inequality is necessarily bad. If the poor do better then like, who cares? But it's just odd that, and I've lived this myself, everyone who's been in Silicon Valley has lived this, that some dude who, yes. who, who joins a random company goes through the usual start of bullshit, which is like headache and overwork and stress for two or three years and comes out worth, you know, $50 with would like set for life. Totally. And somebody else does it or does that four times in a row and, you know, does okay. Like nobody died here, but they don't do that well. And they're, yeah. you know, generationally... Their entire lives are completely distinct. And, you know, it gets even bigger than that. I mean, some companies, like my little dinky company, effectively folded or had like a cushy landing, but it was nothing in the scheme of things. Versus, yeah. and if you actually, and I've, I've had these debates before, if you talk to people in tech BC who have done a lot better than I have, right? And who tend to feel that that means it vindicates their view that this is a meritocratic yes. system. It's like, well, like, I do think there are people who are better at this game than others. And certainly there's better engineers than others sure. and better product managers than others. But are they really a million times better because the outcome was a million no. times better. And I just, yeah. I don't think human talents actually vary by that much. Although the, wor- the reward system might, but I don't think that the actual talent does.
0: Well, because I'm doing a piece about the dichotomy of California and San Francisco Bay Area in particular between like, you know, misery, homelessness, open drug use, and just abs- abject poverty that you would see in the third world next to more billionaires per square foot than any place on planet earth and uh, and it feels like there is not only billionaires but as you say you're kind of you're reasonably smart person who is not particularly impressive but suddenly is worth 50 million and it's like this weird cosmic lottery that people keep pulling tickets here more than anywhere else and it's just a strange 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 place live
1: i I agree it's the contrast is shocking to see like a homeless encampment in front of a company worth billions of dollars that didn't exist five years ago i agree however the contrast usually stops there what i would add to that contrast which is the reality of living in san francisco because otherwise based on that analysis that analysis the solutions that you would advocate for are very simplistic which is well tax the wealthy more use more money whatever sf has the second largest city budget in the United States after New York, it's not the second largest city in the United States of America. In fact, it's not even a very large American city. It's quite small. The amount of money actually spent on city services, or however you want to quantify, it, per, per homeless person, per whatever, yeah. is extraordinarily high. Right? It's not a lack of money, right? So I, I, would, I would put the, the contrast threefold. Yes, there's misery and, and, and human destruction and tragedy on the streets. Yes, there's extraordinary capitalist success and growth. And there is an absolutely putrid and corrupt government that does nothing and somehow does not bridge those divides. And I'm not sure who's to blame necessarily for it, but something about SF civic society is unhealthy and
0: inhumane. I agree. Get more of The Times and The Sunday Times for less than a pound a day. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash Danny in the Valley to start your free trial. That's once again, thetimes.co.uk forward slash Danny in the Valley so that they know I sent you. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. To get started, visit plushcare.com weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Well, I don't know how we went down. I mean, you know, we go lots of different directions. My stuff just radicalized but... you. That's it. We're starting a new yeah. party here. <laughs> <laughs> so the Apple thing kind of happens, and then you are kind of spit back out into this world, which is really interesting because you, you were inside the tent of tech You were outside in another tent. Right. See all the tent analogies here. And then you come out and you have a company like Substack, you know, allowing people with a a voice and a following to actually make money on that, uh, or at least to try to kind of build something out of that. And then you have people like, you know, everybody got very excited about Andreessen Horowitz launching its media operation because they're like, the thinking being, as you alluded to, journalists, you know, the kind of the the organs we have come to know and trust basically are violently anti-tech and we're going to go out and tell our own story. Right. And I'm just wondering how you, when you're coming back out into that world, I presume this is an exciting time to kind of actually try to, like, you know, you're building a newsletter, you're kind of putting things out there in the way you want to and just kind of throwing against the wall as, and see if it sticks. But it's really, it's an interesting time when you have starting to have these tools Amid a backlash from the industry about like, hey, you guys aren't being fair to us.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's an interesting media story. Yeah. Um, It's funny that the Andreessen thing was funny because, you know, they launched, it's called Future, I think, future.a16c.com. And, uh, you know, people, I think it was Dan Primack or whatever, conventional journalists just looked at it. It's like, well... This is interesting. And then they all got online basically shitting on it, which of course meant, meant that it was actually good and threatening because otherwise they, they wouldn't even bother. Um, but it's funny. It's like, oh, this isn't journalism. It's like, you know what, buddy? Journalism isn't journalism anymore, right? The New York Times, by its own admission, Ben Smith himself you know, said that, and other other insiders have said it, right? You know, New York Times basically crafts compelling narratives with some reportage thrown in, but most of it isn't journalism by any stretch of the imagination, right? And Ben Smith said that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want to say the exact quote because I'm paraphrasing, yeah. but yeah, he basically the, the whole new york times is now co- about compelling narratives quote that gets banned about a lot by anti-media people is from his mouth
0: mm.
1: it's in one of his columns i forget where but yeah which I, by the way i think is fair and, and ben smith i think is actually one of the sharp people who get it. like that he, he's he, he's understanding the reality but i mean look at the atlantic just published and i like the atlantic by the way and nick thompson is there yeah. and so i'm positive towards the atlantic but they just published a thing and it's their ad revenues on the floor their subs have actually gone down because after, you know, everyone had a Trump bump and the Trump bump has disappeared. Yeah, totally. That's the problem with this with the subscriber-driven business model, right? It works well when it works well, when you've got this interesting political antagonist that you can sort of go on about, but when that goes away and the subs go away and then you're kind of stuck, right? While well, advertising would have been sort of flat throughout. So anyhow, it, you know, if people are moving to a subscriber-driven business. I, I read a lot, a lot about this when I was in Wired. And I mean, yes, it's alarming in that in many ways, advertisers would allow objective journalism, right, which doesn't need to entertain, can actually go out and do investigative yeah. journalism that nobody would necessarily pay for, but it's societally important. That said, if you actually go back to when the First Amendment was actually written, <laughs> the founding fathers, people like Benjamin Franklin or Sam Adams, right, who dabbled in journalism or own newspapers, their journalism looks a lot more like Substack than it does like the New York Times. <laughs>
0: right it's because they're out there railing against people and right. throwing bombs and yeah
1: anonymously i mean the federalist papers were published anonymously alexander hamilton's yeah. duel was over an anonymous post they, they were all pseudo you know non-troll accounts on twitter that's what they would be if they were alive today right it's like <laughs> our current mediascape resembles what the scape looked like when the first amendment was written than anything that's in the past you know 30 40 years and so that's why part of me is optimistic it's like well yeah it's going to change but, you know, j- journalism is not going to be what it used to be. But you know what? We can still have democracy, even that's not though that's not true.
0: And in those signal chats that you talk about, that you have with your other friends kind of inside the industry, what is their view of the media? Because I often hear this kind of, this criticism about, you know, you guys aren't doing, you're not objective, you're not doing journalism anymore, you're just doing clickbait, blah, 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 blah. And I recognize that I'm a bit of an outsider. I'm a foreign correspondent right. for paper overseas. But like... I've never sat down and be like, what's going how am I going to craft this to get the most clicks? How am I going to like just tear this person down and write a completely one-sided story? Like the reality doesn't seem to track with this narrative which has has become extremely powerful in Silicon Valley.
1: Yeah, 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 and and to be clear, I think tech often gets media wrong as well because they haven't actually worked in media. So the sort of Venn diagram intersection of people who have worked in both tech and media is actually relatively small.
0: <laughs> I mean, which is why you're so
1: interested. I, well, I, I'm not the only one there, to be clear. But yeah, sure. There aren't there aren't yeah. many. Let's put it that way. No, um, there aren't. And so I, I think tech can get it wrong about media as well. Like, I, you're right. I, I don't think there's like the secret bunker where, you know, BuzzFeed tech writers <laughs> get together and craft, you know, their vicious slander today that they're going to go out. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. That's yeah. not how it works, right? But I, I, I do think there's individual, I mean, there's definitely individual journalists who I think operate in bad faith and I would never work with a trust or whatever like those people definitely exist but forget that for a moment let's just speak more broadly I think it's it's implicit in the same way that tech is quote unquote evil or ends up having negative consequences due to certain delusions and sort of operative rules about the world I think journalists can also land in that bucket because think about it like I, I know you report and there's a difference obviously between opinion and reporting but let's face it like what you report on is not necessarily like even the most economically impactful thing any week because if that were the case you would just be talking about like the fed numbers or, or today's yeah, live yeah, curve yeah. Sure. Which is the economically most impactful thing in, in this week but at some level and i totally sympathize with this and i get it you've got to sell some sort of narrative because the reality is that most people it depends who you work for too most people do not pay for news in the coldest objective way unless you work for like wall street journal bloomberg mm-hmm. financial Times. like people are literally paying you like explain to me like the Japanese yen situation today. Right. And and I am the foreign exchange reporter. and I will talk about yen all day every week because people will pay to talk about the yen. But I don't think you're talking about that. When you talk about news, you're talking more about Right. General interest news. You know, the reality is there that most people, and again, it's not irrational. That's what techies get wrong, right? Like your average normie, if your audience is that of even a relatively educated well-off one of the New York times or less so of some regional newspaper, people don't really want to understand the ad tech machinery right like let me tell you a story right exactly right let me tell you a story that's majorly fucking important that every insider is like stressed out about that nobody outside cares well it's been covered somewhat i mean it hasn't been totally ignored uh, but you know Apple just uh, and again this is not to get back at my former employer or anything it's just it is the news right. Apple canceled what's called IDFA which is the unique device ID which joins you to everything yes. so
0: everything about how which is a whole other kind of waterfront I want to get to because I think, I think it is super interesting right because you get it and you understand tech and,
1: and it's good that you find it interesting but I, I don't think most of your readers would want to like talk about for half an, I would love to do it but I don't think most of your readers <laughs> want to talk about you know IDFA <laughs> and how its impacts on like the ad tech ecosystem right and that's one of the problems, yeah. which is totally fair, which is totally fucking fair, right? Like Andreessen Horowitz, as much as I like their effort, I really appreciate it. I think it's great. And, you know, I would even love to write for them one day. You know, they don't need to get audiences to subscribe and listen to their stuff, right? And so they can sort of get away with not not caring about it. But that's not necessarily the case for most journalists. So anyway, I'll stop there.
0: And so one of this, we can talk about business models, which would lead to ads, because I think that's one of the things that's really interesting right now is media is flailing around and has been for since the dawn of the internet with you know what business model makes sense here and now it's getting really to the kind of the critical moment or it's kind of past the critical moment especially we look what's happened the local news has been completely decimated et cetera. but it does feel like um you know that that crossover between or the marriage or the synergy between the business model of a publication and then what it publishes you can't divorce one from the other and I'm just wondering, like for you as a substack, you're basically a uh, subscription business. How have you found it thus far? Like, are, I subscribed to the pull request. I can't remember if you've actually asked for money yet. Because um, um, I'm, a, yes, I'm, a I'm happy to, to copy your subscription, to Danny. But yes, yes, it is
1: paid. <laughs> um, it's definitely paid. Um, I mean, again, they paid me, so th- yeah. This is this is a business. It's no longer the sort of hobby that I. Yeah, Pull request has been around for a while, but I relaunched it. But you know, for now, now it's for real. Yes. Um, and you're right. I mean, there is, I think there's, there's definitely a dynamic between the business model and the media itself and the audience. And those all have interplays with each other. Like, so just to another thing to go back to your earlier question, one thing that tech people get wrong about media is like, Oh, it's all clickbait. It's like, dude, like the trend here is not towards,
0: it's the opposite direction. Exactly. People. It's the
1: opposite direction. Wait, clickbait only makes sense when you're trying to drive page views because you're on a CPM business model selling ads. If you're not, the, the better mental model which would actually make more more sense to tech is that it's like driving app installs for any conventional game app right it's like for sure. you've got the top of funnel which is your free content they see it through your various distribution channels usually unpaid but sometimes not right like Sometimes it's sponsored content, and then you go yeah. down, and at some point you subscribe, and there's a conversion event. I mean, it's literally like installing some freemium app, and then you know upgrading to the paid version. Like that—that that really is the model for the subscription model. But then, you know, what sort of con- content would drive that? It's not necessarily clickbait. It's not necessarily like, frankly, shitty, superficial content like BuzzFeed listicles back in the day, um, because they—they they were definitely going for the sort of clickbait advertising
0: model. For sure.
1: Well, if you look at—and this is me like repeating Substack lore right, about like what works on Substack and at least what I've anecdotally observed, because of course I subscribe to Matt Iglesias and Matt Taibbi and Andrew Sullivan and like the biggest names on their leaderboard, right? Um, You know, so so what is Substack, right? In my opinion, just to go back, and I I hate doing this PM thing of like, oh, this is like the the landscape of the world, but I think media over the past 20 years has done two things. There's been two big unbundlings. One is the unbundling of the audience for the publication, right? Like back in the day, Mm -hmm. I used to have to go and like, I could only reach the New York Times audience by paying them $10, CPM or $100,000 for a full page or whatever. They control the audience yeah. and that's it, right? Most of what the ad tech machinery did, all these ad exchanges, cookie tracking, all this shit, at the end of the day, what it did was take that audience out of the control of the publisher and put it effectively in the hands of either the middleman to a certain degree or the advertiser themselves, right? Like I now know everyone who came to my shop and didn't buy something and I wanna buy them anywhere. I don't give a damn from where, I own my audience in that sense, right? So that's, right. that's one big unbundling. The other big unbundling, is from the creative itself right it's the writer inside the organization somebody who you know in some sense drives the organization like I you know to be blunt I only read New York Magazine for Andrew Solomon's column although otherwise like the rest of the covers didn't really interest me that much or like Rolling Stone I only would have read Matt Taibbi's stuff you know and then a lot of people who cover the smaller beats I mean to be honest well who knows but if they were to actually get paid sort of individually they, they may or may not do particularly well depends but then finally answering your question, so who does well in this new business model? I think it's people with a strong voice. Like you want to you want to tune in to the, in my case, the AGM show or the Maddie Glacier show or the Taibi show, and you just, I like his view in the world. I want to pick his brain. I want to read his shit. And whatever that guy thinks and talks about, I'm going to follow him there, right? And then the paid side of it is kind of, I'm using air quotes and being ironic about it. It's kind of the VIP sort of access thing where like, They're more unguarded. It's the more personal touch. You're part of the comments. You're part of a community. Like I've seen authors. The signal chat. Right. The signal chat effectively. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's weird because, again, this is what drove me crazy last time. But you turn your life into sort of a spectacle in a sense and it becomes kind of that show. And depending on how big your brand extends or how widely. I mean, there's a lot of authors who do well on Substack. Who maybe aren't on the top of the leaderboard and talk about more niche topics, but yet they're monetizing that pretty well. And they're like the leading voice in that thing. And, hey, great. They can they can now yeah. address whatever, I don't know, the knitting world or whatever, which I'm sure yeah, there's yeah. more than enough knitters in the United States to have a successful Substack around, <laughs> right? If you just did it right. So,
0: so the other thing I wanted to touch on, which we briefly discussed was ads and what is happening there. Because I do think there's like these kind of the tectonic plates are moving and most people have no idea what's happening. That's right. They are moving. But I think it's, it's a big deal. And I think it could have some pretty interesting consequences. So I don't know if you as an ad whiz can kind of lay Sorry. out what is happening here, because I think it is really interesting. Um, and it's kind of happening. Yeah, I mean, I've written about some of the tech press has, but most people have no idea. Right. And I think it's pretty profound.
1: No, it, it, it is profound. Two things, because I know everyone's going to start, like, tuning out, oh, my God, ads. Two things. One, it pays, it, it pays for most of, or much of the internet. And so for that reason yes. alone, it's worthwhile. And then two, ads, I'm going to make a slightly salty metaphor. I know this is a family podcast, Annie, but we're going we're gonna to go there. Um, go for it. Ads is kind of like the porn industry in that it is, like, the ruthlessly pragmatic and quantitative industry that will adopt whatever tool that will just drive its metrics no matter what, right? And in the same way that yes. porn – actually pioneered like subscription streaming video way before Netflix was anything. And like online payments way before Amazon was anything. Right. And so like what the porn industry does is almost like this bellwether (laughs) for what the, or or, like what criminals use as as tools, right. Is also another bellwether of like, they don't care. They'll just use things that work. Yeah.
0: It's like the space industry created Velcro and Tang and all these things that we ended up using a lot. It's just like, or formula one for the auto industry. Right. It's kind of you need high performance metrics to keep that thing afloat so right
1: and so so ads is kind of like that and it's like well we've got to engineer this weird way of getting all this user data because there actually is all this money at stake and all this quantity and stuff yeah and so anyhow as with that as preface and by which i mean that what i'm going to talk about in terms of what it impacts you the user and your privacy it's not going to be limited to ads it's everything right like i'm i'm wearing an apple watch here and it's taking all this health data and it's gonna impact that as well. Probably the biggest reservoir of like health data is gonna be, you know, smartwatch data broadly. So yeah. so what's going on is, okay, so how I typically explain it is, so for the past 20 years, right? And I, I've been in ads like, I don't know, 10, 12 years or something, the entire paradigm of not just ads, but all your user data, how it works is, you're on a device, right? A browser back in the day, or now even, yeah. or mobile device, whatever, you do things, right? And your data and some form of a unique ID, cookie ID, device ID, whatever, goes into the cloud, this unseen you know, Borg that surrounds the yes. world, stuff happens, <laughs> and then you get back an experience that's an ad or another item in a newsfeed or whatever. I mean, that is kind of a summary of how it's actually architected. Like your data leaves the phone or the device, goes into the cloud, things happen, you get another know thing. Right? That all is changing, that's gone. I mean, it, it, we've already started moving in that direction. The company I worked at, Branch, kind of worked on that. And Google's obviously going in that direction. And, you know. <laughs> what's going on at these big companies and um what's happening the whole architecture diagram is getting reversed right for reasons of privacy so privacy as it's been defined legally this is
0: being driven by primarily by apple
1: um uh, they yeah they're, I can't really talk about what they're doing but um from the
0: what's well i mean yeah. the public stuff around the idfa which yeah, is yeah yeah yes unique device id yes.
1: And so the unique device id thing just to explain it to use another metaphor right in, in america right you have this thing called the social security number i assume there's some uk equivalent it's the same thing yeah. in you know it, this wasn't created to be a unique id it was supposed to administer social security benefits were only for the old but it ended up being the unique version of you you use it to apply to get a mortgage bank everything right so imagine one day the government woke up and just said the social security number is going away. <laughs> we're just canceling it. We're, you, there's right. no way we're not going to issue them anymore, right? If you want to identify yourself, you have to involve the Social Security Administration directly in everything you do, and that's effectively what Apple did with the IDFA. It said, "Okay, that's it. The unique notion of you is going away, and we're just going to engineer a system where Apple, you know, manages your identity." Google's ma- making steps in the same direction. To be clear, it's not some sort of unique thing around Apple. And so what that means is like, okay, well then how does this work? How do ads work? How do, how do target, you know, how do we do the trick where like you look at a pair of shoes and they follow me around the internet? How do we do that? Yes. Excellent question. Well, I have a post about this on pull request for those who want to go into a little bit more detail, but called the future of ads privacy. But basically what's going to happen is.
0: Good plug. Everybody subscribe to the pull request. It's great. (laughs) Well, I
1: don't want to go that far, but you know, if you want the longer version. I'll do it. it I did. It is on there. Okay. Um, What's going to happen is your data is not going to leave the phone. Right. So like. When, you know, Tim Cook or, or Sundar gets up and says, hey, we care about your privacy, it's kind of true. You know, all this engineering is actually better for user privacy. Like, in fact, the yeah. data not leaving your phone is a lot better than your data getting scattered to the four winds, because ultimately you have the real opt out, which is like you can literally take your phone and like throw it into the ocean. And that that's it. The data is gone. You don't exist as, as, as far as the advertisers go. Yeah. And that is definitely better for user privacy.
0: The flip side it's the equivalent of ripping up your social security item, right but, and, and your, your new social right. security number. and it, it actually <laughs> disappearing
1: from every computer in the world yeah. like it's actually gone right yeah and so th- the flip side of that well a you might ask like wait how are they going to technically do that a lot of the functionality that used to live in the cloud around things like optimization picking of ads content whatever is going to live on the phone right and again These moves have already been made in that direction. Google has an effort in its browser. My previous employer, Branch, built a bunch of stuff. It's not one company doing it. There's a general industry trend in that direction. So a lot of and you know, and it makes sense, right? Because when you think about it, You know, what is the huge thing of mobile computing? We all have what would have been considered a super fast computer even a few years ago, just sitting in your pocket, talking on pretty fast network to the outside world. Why did we architect a system in which everything happens in the clouds? When you're running code right there on the phone, like there's actually machine learning libraries, matrix math, there's stuff you can do on a phone. You don't need to do it in the cloud. Why would you, right? Like every time we talk to the cloud, it's like at least 100 milliseconds of latency going up and back. It's just like, what is the point? Just do it on the damn phone. And so this is all going to get built on your phone. And the data is not going to leave your phone. The flip side of that, though, like the negative, like everyone's like, OK, right, this sounds like a free lunch. Well, depends. Right. Yeah. Because in all this conversation of privacy, everyone's been cranking that knob up to 11. But they don't realize that and the other side of privacy is something called competition. Right. This this world where your idea, your ID went into the cloud, your data went into the cloud and a, and a bunch of third parties, um, third party mobile attribution partners like my previous yep. employer branch. Uh, measurement partners, ads buying people who would buy on different exchanges, there's a whole ecosystem there of third parties doing stuff with your data, often totally legitimate, sometimes a little shady to be honest. That all goes away because they can't they can't track you for engineering reasons we yep. won't get into. And so it just means that whoever owns that identity and that device, be it Google, be it Apple, and sometimes controls the notion of you when it comes to the data ecosystem. And again, if if mm. if you trust Google or Apple more than you trust all these unnamed companies you've never heard of that are using your data it's good for you as the user it's bad for any notion of competition no one's going to in the fullest vision of this it's going to be difficult to compete with a Google or an Apple as a third party player in this market
0: and is it that stark Google and Apple because they control between them the basically every smartphone on the planet
1: yeah basically yeah because it yeah well, I mean, the, when you say Google, it depends, right? I mean, they have an open source Android ecosystem. They're one of, they're one of the biggest suppliers of, of Google phones. I'm not sure what their market share is. But like Xiaomi, yeah. which is a company most people haven't heard of, is a huge Chinese handset maker and I think is the number two handset maker now in the world. I think it just surpassed Apple. Yeah. And, um, you know, they're, they're not Google. They're in Google's operating system, but they're, they're a different person. But... There's a whole separate sub question here, which is super wonky, which is like within the Google ecosystem, how does it play out between the third party content makers and Google? So, but, but yes, broadly, it's going to be Google and Apple. Yes.
0: So is the takeaway here, just the kind of 30,000 foot view, like, you know, Apple's worth $2.4 trillion today.
1: (laughs) Is it that high? Jesus.
0: Yes. Okay. Google's 1.7 trillion. Are they just kind of about to take off even more?
1: Well, in terms of their ads revenue, yes, which in the case of Google is is material, it's still the bulk of their revenue. In the case of Apple, yeah. it's not such a large fraction of their revenue. And so it's less important if you're just talking about equity valuation. Not that I would ever make a public statement about equity valuations, <laughs> but it's it's super big for Google because obviously much more of their revenue comes from, from the outside of things. You know, in general, zero sum thinking is not correct with when it comes to tech, but when you talk about things like digital ads budgets, it is a little zero sum in that, you know, budgets next quarter are gonna be whatever, some percentage more than they are today. And if you're fighting over ad budget, then yes, you are fighting over it. So for example, one of the things that's been written about is like what is the impact on, say, Facebook of these moves, right? Well, yes. I I don't think it's the end of the company, right? I mean, they're still announcing good quarters. That said, their ad system will not work as well. No, it won't, right? Because it won't be able to track people as well. And so, and this was always one of Facebook's nightmares, right? Like, it's been reported fairly credibly that Facebook has been working on a phone. And the fear was always that, you know, seen from the point of view of Apple or Google, Facebook is just another app on the app store, right? It is, nothing, totally. it is nothing more than that. And and Facebook has always understood this. This is not like, ooh, surprise, 2021. Yeah. They've always understood this, but they've never kind of made the necessary investment to actually build their own independent phone. So
0: as a business, I mean, obviously Facebook is gigantic and they're full of very smart people, et cetera. Right. But, I mean, if they are just an app on the app store and they're basic, I mean, I know, I saw Mark Zuckerberg's full page ads he took out and then... New York Times and yeah. Financial Times saying this is going to really hurt small businesses, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Which is partly true, by the way.
0: But anyway, yeah, yeah. But is this? I mean, how transformative is it for the kind of the tech landscape? Do you think this could? How transformative do you think it could be? Um, especially when you think about the kind of the big dogs of that basically run, run the web, at least in the West. Oh, I
1: I think again, short term, it's gonna take a while to play out. Like even the IDFA cancellation, I think Apple announced it a year and a half ago and it only happened this quarter. So, you know, these things take time even in tech, but no, I I think it's kind of, I think it's a big deal. And again, it's gonna affect more than just ad tech too, right? Like all this use of health data, your smart speaker in your home, like the expectation will be that the user's data never leaves the device. The computation happens on the device and the whole Targeting and tracking and optimization system is geared around that, and so just think about like who loses if your data never leaves the device and can't be individually tracked. Well, third party ads exchanges and you know like Facebook, which at the end, I mean, it's it's first party, and then obviously they're addressing their own users. But from the point of view of Apple and or Google and identity, it's it's kind of third party, right? And that they're they're kind of on the device, but. They don't really own that user; it's through an Apple or, or Google device.
0: But, yeah. And so, is it? I mean, I'm just thinking about this in the terms of the you know the App Store fight that is happening right yeah. now. You know, Apple takes its thirty percent pound of flesh, oh, or fifteen percent uh, for some. For anybody who's you know any developer who has an app transacting on the through the App Store, it feels like. I mean, obviously, it's a big business for them. But another reason they would be so fiercely defending it is that they could see a world where they take an app store type fee for kind of everything. If anybody wants access to this data that, you know, if you want to get that health data whatever it may be, I don't know if that's the wrong way to think about it, but it does feel like if basically they are bringing all of this stuff within their own domain, that gives them immense power. Yeah. I would
1: think of it less as a per install rev share as like, yeah, if you're an app publisher and you want to drive user installs or you want to drive upsells, which almost every app publisher with a paid media budget does, then, yeah, you're going to have effectively, I mean, you, you may or may not see it that transparently, you're paying Apple for those users now, or m- many more of the dollars that you're paying to acquire those users will go directly to Apple, rather than going to potentially Facebook, right? Like Facebook used to drive user app installs left and right, right? And to the extent totally. that, they can't do it that well, and to the extent that Apple can, your budgets get turned from Facebook budgets into Apple budgets. And so, yeah, I mean, you, you can think of it <laughs> in terms of your like total cost, user cost of acquisition and cost of servicing on the iOS platform. It goes up, right? And that like the CAC, the customer acquisition cost goes to Apple instead of Facebook. Plus you're paying them 30% for all the revenue on the app store. So if you look at your aggregate margin that you're paying away to Apple, it goes up and at the expense of other companies. That, that's right.
0: Last question. Should I care? As like your average dude in the street. With an iPhone in his pocket or, you know, an Android phone?
1: The ad stuff, probably not. The bigger impact stuff, like my health data going private, yes. Because, um, random anecdote to illustrate it, I was having in our still somewhat pandemic COVID times yeah. a video thing with a doctor at one uh, medical. It was around sleep issues and this and that, whatever. And the guy asked me a bunch of questions. I'm like, look, dude, like I track all my sleep data on this sleepwise the sleep app and there's this beautiful chart with my activity on it and like so i was just like literally holding it up to the camera on top of my screen to like show it to yep. me, dude and it's like dude, this is ridiculous this is like li- literally me i remember back in the office at one point i had to like run x-ray films from like one hospital to the other because there was nobody said them. <laughs> this is me like at that level it's like how about as part of the one medical app or whatever i give you authorization the data stays on, on my device of course you, you do whatever transformation or whatever sharing there has to be to get the medical process done. And then it's over and I feel over control of it and it's convenience yeah. and it's fine. And like, yeah, it's health data and it's sensitive, but who cares? I want the doctor to see it because I want him to give me an answer. Right. And so yeah. when it comes to the use of all your data in all sorts of ways that, you know, we're just at the cusp spat, this is going to change that in, in many ways. And I think probably for the better, like solving the problem I just said, which is like, get my sleep data to this doctor, even though it seems engineering from a, from an engineering perspective, it's harder, right? Like it'd be better if this was just sitting in the cloud and, and they're back in the app or just look at it. But from a privacy and a regulation perspective, right? And that's just not going to go away. You live in a real regulatory environment. It's probably easier to leave it on the device. And that way, certain checkboxes are checked off in the privacy checklist. And you just have to get yeah. that technology um, such that you enable the functionality, but the, you know the data never leaves the device and all the rest. Of it. So anyhow, I think it's going to be a, a tough chasm to cross because again, it's like, it's really weird to engineer things on device first just because historically for the past 20 years we haven't. And so it's just yeah. technologies, the infrastructure isn't there, the mentalities aren't there. But once we we make this hop, I think it enables a lot of more interesting use cases, right? Because again, it's going to change the way that you interact with your data and the outside world. Like if you think, I mean, obviously I live a little bit too mired in this Silicon Valley world, but if anything, that just means I'm like maybe a couple of years ahead of like the average normie. But, you know, I live in a world that's nothing but like, my data interacting with computation. Like that's all I do at the end of the day. At the end of the day, it's a little, yeah. little square called Antonio with a bunch of data going to a bunch of servers and data back again. Like that's it. That's the engineering diagram of my life. And to the extent that we've upended that diagram and made it such a data stairs over here and now we can do all these other things, it will change your life, right, in, in, in a big way.
0: I mean, it sounds like what we're talking about is, you know, a quarter century into like the web as we know it, kind of remaking how we pay for it or how it functions or like just kind of remaking the kind of the scaffolding of it.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right, which is a big deal. Like again, usually like the architecture, like, you know, you don't think about like the exact network diagram of how you get internet, right? Like on this phone call, cause like you just don't have to yeah. think about it. Cause you're at a computer science call called the abstraction layer is way above that, right? But sometimes yeah. if you rejigger that base layer network, it changes things at the application layer, right? And this is one of those yeah. cases where, like in the same way that, I don't know, ethernet or Wi-Fi. remember we used to plug in a cable to your, to your computer and then, <laughs> and then like, ubiquitous wi-fi changed everything this is one of those cases yes. where like a base link layer thing that seems kind of trivial actually bubbles things up and, and changes things altogether
0: and i said last question but i have one more and it's the most important how is living in the biggest little city in the world oh reno it's <laughs> funny that you know the thing from... <laughs> yeah. i've been to Reno. i've been to reno uh back when i was you know in short pants uh and God, I've gone there on a few kind of epic trips with friends way back in the day, but yeah. Yeah, this Reno thing, it's funny, like everyone's
1: impression of Reno is probably either sort of slightly wrong or biased in that they hang around the downtown area. So Reno, for those who aren't familiar with maybe possibly British listeners or whatever, so Reno's in Nevada, which is just east of here, and it's kind of like this yeah. very, very little brother to Vegas. It doesn't have
0: quite... Yeah, it's the redheaded stepchild right. of, of Vegas. Right, it doesn't
1: even have like the pomp and glamour of, of no. Vegas, it's a lot. It's just a lot smaller. Um, But it is in northern Nevada. It's actually three hours east of the Bay. It's close to Lake Tahoe, which is absolutely gorgeous, kind of like a Lake Cuomo, sort of, but in in California. And um, Reno is interesting. I mean, it's it's weird. Only in America would you have, like, basically this Mad Max desert state, right, with non-existent gun laws, but the sort of tax and corporate regulation of, like, Switzerland next to what is, like, this total lefty, (laughs) super woke, semi-commie thing that feels like Brazil but has, like, apples and Google sort of corporations in it. Only in America would you have, like, these two states literally right next to each other. (laughs) Correct. And, like, if you literally cross the state border with, like, depending on what's in your car, you'll commit half a dozen felonies, right? Like, in in either (laughs) direction, right? Depending what what you're carrying, whether it's either guns or drugs or whatever, just you can end up in jail for... And so it's it's weird. It's interesting. Reno is definitely underrated. As with many sort of second or third tier cities in the US, they've seen this jump of real estate. There's a huge real estate boom in Reno, believe it or not. I believe that. And it's mostly Californians showing up to buy with cash. And uh, yeah, they, sure. they just come in there, slam money on the table and just buy the house and that's it. And um, quality of life is pretty high. It's totally bougied out. Whole Foods, like all that crap, all that shit that you get in San Francisco, you can get in Reno. The outdoors wow. is pretty cool. Like. It's, you know, it's desert, but it's high desert, right? Like it's wooded. It's yeah, not yeah. that arid. And so outdoor, you know, like Tahoe is great skiing, kayaking, whatever. And then I, it's actually in the constitution. There's no state income tax. It will never have a state income tax. And, and basically gambling pays for everything. It, it's like it's like some sort of Gulf oil state where this bizarre industry pays for everything. Well, in, in Nevada, it's that <laughs> except it's gambling. And so that's why the taxes are yeah. so low because gambling pays for everything. And so, anyhow, that, that's what it's like. I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm still not totally sold on it, but it is an interesting change.
0: Yeah, as you say, it's not that far, but also a million miles from... That's right. That's exactly from, right. From the Bay Area. <laughs> that's right. Uh, well, cool. Well, look, I appreciate you taking the time and kind of sauntering through lots of different uh, areas. But I think, it's, yeah, it's a fascinating time. And I wish you luck with the... Uh, with the sub stack pull request everybody go check it the, out it's, sorry to be clear and this is the
1: opposite of the social network movie it actually has the the in it
0: the <laughs> the pull the. request
1: <laughs> pull request is, is is a yc company the pull request is the sub stack also on twitter obviously at antonio gm as well
0: there you go And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Antonio for taking the time. I want to thank you all for listening as ever. I want to thank you for your ratings and your reviews. Please keep them rolling in. And those little tips here and there on the ACAST creator feature, always appreciated. You can find me on the Twitters at Danny Fortson. I'll be writing in the Times this weekend about, I think I might be writing about Snapchat. Interesting company. You know, not long ago, they were kind of seen as, not necessarily on their way out, but struggling wildly. And now their share price has gone up tenfold. They're barreling toward profitability. Evan Spiegel went from dunce to product visionary in a lot of people's eyes. So it's it's a really interesting story. So do check that out. And that is it. I will talk to you next week. Have a fabulous weekend. Stay safe. Stay sane. Talk to you soon. Bye bye. want more out of this podcast, go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Danny in the Valley to read articles based on these interviews, broader discussions of the topics covered here, and of course, the amazing work of all my colleagues across the rest of the paper, all for less than one pound a day. Start your free trial now by going to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Danny in the Valley. Junction at platform.
1: Passenger.
0: Airport, please stay on board. Next stop, road station. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone.